God, what a wonderful, amazing, awe-inspiring, humbling truth. Lord, that we had a price that we couldn't pay because of our sin. And Jesus, who had no sin, took on that sin so that we could be redeemed, so that we could become the righteousness of God. So, Lord, I pray that as we think on that, that we would be humbled and we would be made courageous, Lord, for the life living out this kingdom gospel. So, Lord, for your glory we live, for your glory we surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So, Paul, that statement we just read, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, he comes out and just makes this statement that has the force of a command. He's saying, just like we said, hey, you're victorious, you've won, live like it. But it's more than just a command. Paul says, you've received Jesus. This this is being addressed to those who have acknowledged Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior, and have surrendered and submitted their will and lives to him. So it's more than just a command. Paul says you've received Jesus. He says, now walk in Him and overflow with thanksgiving. You're like, that sounds nice. It's kind of like, like when, when like someone's depressed and they, and they tell you and you're like, well, just be happy. Like that's kind of how we could easily read this. Like it's like, okay, you're free, so just act like it. Live like it. And you're like, okay, that sounds good, but, but really what does that mean? So like that's where we're, Paul is like just pulling us back in this catapult and propelling us into this truth today. And so he says to walk in him and overflow with thanksgiving. And it sounds like this dry command of like, okay, now go and just make sure that's like evident. Because walk in him is talking about the behavior of your life. It's talking about the ethical behavior in which you live. So he's saying, let your life look like you receive Jesus. To receive Jesus is just to receive forgiveness of your sins as he took on your guilt and paid your your price, paid your debt, as we've already said. To receive Jesus is to receive the freedom that comes from having your record of wrong erased. Now we talk about it a lot. God being a good and just God, He doesn't just say, oh, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not gonna, I'm, he doesn't just say, I'm just going to say you're innocent and just kind of keep moving and brush your, your wrong, your, your transgressions under the rug. That's not just, right? We've, we've said this, if you've been in this room a few times you've probably heard this, but if you haven't, let me say it one more time. A just judge will always do what? He will always, a just judge will always acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. And you cannot do the, the reverse of that. You cannot acquit the guilty and condemn the innocent. And if it was just that God said, you're not, I'm not going to deem you guilty, that wouldn't be just. But he said, he gave Christ our guilt. He gave Jesus our guilt, and he gave us his righteousness. So he actually made it to where we were innocent because now we have the righteousness of Jesus. So we, we've talked about that a lot, but that is, to re, that is where our freedom comes from. The fact that our debt, our wrong, was totally erased. To receive Jesus is to receive an incorruptible hope that is not of this world. So yes, Paul, Paul gives a command. But he doesn't give it in this sense so that you would prove it to be true by how you live. That's not the point here. He's not, he's, he's not making it to where our life proves out the truth. The, it has, what Paul is doing here, Paul's command comes from the reality that the work of Christ and its effect on you and me 
is so true and so complete that it must, it has to be, it's unavoidable that it is shown in our lives. That's the point of this. So it's a, it, this truth is so, so real that it has the force of a command. It has the force of a command. So hear the invitation today. If you do not know this forgiveness, if you do not know this freedom, if you do not know this incorruptible hope, come to Jesus today. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes home to our Heavenly Father but by Him. So Paul lays out just this beautiful truth, this, this, this promise command, if you will. I mean, it's, it's, it's inseparable. It's a promise that leads to a way of life. So he sets out to help us live, to walk in this glorious truth. So he starts with a warning. We pick up in Colossians 2.8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul knows that living in this world is difficult. He knows that we are constantly bombarded with, with lies, with other messages, with other hopes, with other truths, with other identities, with other validations. He knows that. So he just lays out kind of in summary form all the things that pull us away, the philosophy and empty deceit, just the, the constant babbling. We see, him, we see him warn against just getting caught up in just talking. And I know that Christians especially, we can be guilty of talking about what matters. We can be busy, we can get distracted just talking about what we should be doing. We can get busy, we can get distracted and be too busy just talking about how good God is, but not actually living in that goodness and proclaiming that goodness. So he says, you know, this, the, just this, because philosophy is not bad, it's just reasoning. It's, it's, but it's, it's when it's just empty and errant and aimless. And he says the human tradition. Don't get caught up in human tradition. The things that the world says are the way to peace, the way to meaning, the things that are temporal. And he says the elemental spirits in the truest of context here, it is referencing the local and national gods and goddesses of the time. So, but if you think about what that is, that is kind of the, the, the cultural laws that govern a way of life. So once again, what do we see about all these? They're defined in the world. They're defined in the temporal, not the eternal. According to Christ, brings us to the eternal. So what is Paul saying? He is saying, don't get sucked into living only for this world. Don't get sucked into living only in this world. Yes, this world offers good things. God created it. He created it good. But His promises, the promises of this world, the human tradition, the philosophy, the, the foundational understandings, those elemental spirits, the foundational tenets, they only result in temporal satisfaction, temporal hope. I mean, we can live for the good of this world and the good of others, but if that's all it is for us, it's the benefit of a few decades. And then what? You're like, well, what about our fellow man? Leaving a better world for our fellow man. That's, that's meaning enough. I mean, isn't it selfish to say you need more than that? Okay. So then we give it a few more decades. A few more centuries. Maybe a millennia. But then what? 
Do you hear the kindness of calling us beyond that? Do you hear the kindness of, of to say it in accordance to Christ? It's not just saying in accordance to some set of beliefs or some set of laws. It is saying in accordance to the gift that comes in Christ. In accordance to the complete work achieved in Christ. In accordance to the, the ultimate gift given in Christ. You can pursue happiness in all kinds of ways, but to search it out anywhere but in Christ will only lead you temporal things and ultimately to kind of your own personal prison because it all crumbles it all points to self and eventually that doesn't satisfy so according to christ means you are free to the manner he has made you free through the means he has made possible his work not yours his offering not yours his righteousness not yours his purpose not yours. Have you ever tried to use anything for a purpose other than which, other than which it was created for? You ever tried to play a symphony with a broom? Or sweep a floor with a violin, a Stradivarius? It doesn't work. A broom is great when you're trying to sweep. Maybe playing stickball. That's kind of a variant. But, the, but if you want to see something flourish... Let it be used for, what, for that which it was created. We were created for the glory of God. We were created for that glory to be exhibited in fellowship with him. And God reconciled us. He restored our fellowship in Christ. So Christ, he's calling us to the authority of Jesus. Can the created have more authority than the creator? What's the point? that Paul makes here in verses 9 and 10. He says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And we're going to unpack this fully kind of right, right at the end, but for now let us, let us point this out. This claim here, what Paul is pointing out is that Jesus is superior. Just earlier, a few verses earlier in his letter, we call them verses, it was just earlier in his letter. He didn't have verses when he wrote it. But he took time to point out the preeminence of Christ. And that's not just the first. Not just that Jesus was the first. And it's not just that he is imminent, because imminent would just be great among other great things. But preeminence, it is vivid, it is vibrant. It's that he is superior of a whole nother quality than anything he could be compared to. So he took time to unpack how Jesus is preeminent in our salvation and in creation and in the new creation. But we see that part of that is that Jesus is God. That he was there at the beginning. He was part of creation. He has claim over the things of the world because he created the world as part of the Trinity. You see, Jesus doesn't just have divine characteristics. To say that Jesus has divinity, while it's true, it's not just characteristics. You see, Jesus, he has the full deity of God. He has the full authority of God, and he came to this earth to put flesh on all of God's promises and character. John 8.58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And for the people hearing that of the day, to that, that those two words, I am, is the strongest claim of deity, the strongest claim of being God that could have been made. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that here, proven out through the rest of Scripture, that the Word here is referring to Jesus. He is the Word become flesh. So we see that at the very beginning, Jesus was there. 
as part of creation. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance. Speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can the created have more authority than the Creator? No. Paul is saying, hey, Jesus has the authority to do these things. Why does it matter so much that Jesus took on flesh and came to earth? I love how N.T. Wright summarizes this. He says, our Redeemer is also our Creator, so we have nothing to fear in all of the universe. I'll read it again. Our Redeemer is also our Creator, so we have nothing to fear in all of the universe. I love thinking of it like this. The hands that created you and me, the hands that created us, are also the hands that were pierced so that we could be redeemed. Humbling, but giving of courage. So we can trust Jesus over the things of this world. This is what Paul is driving us to. What can we trust Jesus to accomplish? So we're going to work through these last verses kind of in way broader sense than they deserve. But let's read these last verses, 11 through 15. In Him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Okay, so a few things that I want us to make sure we recognize as we work through this so that we can stand and celebrate victorious in Christ today. So that we don't miss the celebration in this life. So we talked about circumcision. Again, we got to think about the context. This was written, you know, a long time ago. People of Israel, they, they practiced circumcision. Circumcision was practiced so that Israel would be shown to be set apart as God's people for his holy purpose. It was a way in which they could outwardly evidence the fact that they were set apart. And these people of Israel, they had a promise. Their promise was an earth of an earthly inheritance. They were waiting for the, the earthly promised land that would, be, that would be given and restored to them. And we see here that the, 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 there was this circumcision that happened not by human hands, but one done of our hearts. In Christ, His transforming work is not merely physical, but is supernatural and complete to the point of being beyond this world, which includes our inheritance, which includes our promise. Our inheritance is a heavenly one. You heard us say the words incorruptible hope earlier. This is your incorruptible hope, that you have been sealed in Him, by the Holy Spirit, you have this promise. We have the promise of an eternal kingdom that we are invited to live as citizens of already. All of the promise that will be complete one day where there is no more pain, sickness, tears, or death, we have that hope now. We have that identity now. Yes, we still toil in this world. We still trial in this world. 
But yet, we have an incorruptible hope that sustains. We have a grace that covers in Christ. So then, Paul then uses Christ's example of baptism to teach the life we have in Him. Again, baptism was another way of outwardly evidencing being a people of Israel. And it was generally used for the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, outside of Judaism, as they, as they came in and said, I believe and I am leaving my old way of life and coming in to the covenant people of Israel. That was what baptism was used for then. We still practice it today as believers' baptism, knowing that the symbolism, as, as Jesus modeled in his obedience of, of being baptized, is, is the picture as we go under the water of being laid to the grave, just as Jesus was, and as we come up out of the water, being resurrected from the grave as Jesus was to new life. So this picture of baptism is the death that we experience to self-sin and death, physical death. And then as we come up out of the water again, the picture of new life, new life in Christ, new life that is eternal, new life that is full of hope, and new life that has present purpose, the same purpose that Jesus came into this world for. This is the picture of baptism. This is how Paul is teaching us what this work of Christ has accomplished in our lives. Did you see that? It says, did you see the power, the same power that raised him from the dead is the same power that worked in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that resurrects yours and my lives. Do you see that we are not left to futility? We're not left to destruction. We're not left to wonder, to meander. You see, we're not just given life by the power of God. We're given the same quality of life as one of his children. Scripture tells us over and over again that we are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, made, made heirs with Christ. So we're not just given a future hope. We're given a whole new quality of life in Christ because of these foundational truths we've been talking about, because of his work achieved for us. Man, do you see the glorious picture of, of God's redeeming work in His Son. Can you, is your life given to Him? Is it walking in Him? You see, in Him, let me just reiterate once again, we are free. We're made totally new. We are alive for the first time. For the first time, yes, we were breathing before. Yes, we had blood coursing through our veins. But we were dead. We were not alive. We were prisoners. All of our work was futile. It would have amounted to nothing. But in Christ, we are made alive for the first time. And we're called into the life of that freedom. Have you ever been to the circus? Anywhere where there's an elephant? India, maybe. Thailand. Just throw out some places you've seen elephants. TV. Um, but have you ever noticed, have you ever seen this? You'll see this huge, powerful element that can uproot trees just with its trunk. And yet, they can be held in place by a string on a small stake. Have you ever seen that? It's real. Do you know how that happens? Because when the elephant is small, they put, a, they put an immovable stake and chain on him or her. And that elephant becomes to believe that it can never escape. 
And then eventually the elephant's mind is broken and it doesn't, doesn't realize that it's just being, in, being held in place by some false power. Paul, once again, is saying, don't live, I'm sure he had this in mind, like that elephant. <laughs> it's like, you're free. I mean, I, I remember when I first started teaching, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but this is like one of my, like the first illustrations I ever enjoyed sharing, and, and, and it was this, this, this guy had this dog, and, and his dog was, was loved sitting on the porch, and they had a, you know, a long sidewalk in this gate, and the mailman, first time is to the, he's, he's on this route, and he's bebopping up. He's like, boop, 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 boop. It's the first time he, of course, like experienced mailman know not to do this. But just pops the gate open. He's going to walk up to put the mail in the box. And the dog looks at him. And y'all know the relationships of mailmen and dogs. Not good. Mail people and dogs, just to be accurate. Um, um, but <laughs> this is what happens when I get off notes. And so... Um, <laughs> And the dog sees him, and he's like, oh, that's my enemy. And he takes off running, and, and the mailman's just frozen, doesn't know what to do, the postal worker. And the, and the dog is running, and he's snarling, and he's growling, and he goes, and just before he jumps, he, like, slams on the brakes and runs back to the porch. And about that time, the owner hears the commotion and walks out, and the mailman, the mail person was like, hey, what is up with your dog? The craziest thing just happened. He goes, oh, yeah. We used to keep him on a chain years ago, but he just hasn't figured out that we took it off yet. And so, yeah, a bonus, bonus illustration, make it stick. But he's, Paul is saying, hey, you're free. You've been made free in Christ. Live free. It is utterly done. It's utterly complete. There's nothing left to do. He did it for you. In verse 14, it says that your record of debt was erased as it was nailed to the cross. And I love this. That phrase we see there, nailing it to the cross, it's most likely a play on the sign that was posted on the cross that mocked Jesus with the words that said, King of the Jews. Paul is most likely kind of knowingly giving an, an ironic nod to this. Paul is once again calling us to the majesty and the sovereign rule of Jesus. Does it comfort you to think or to say or to embrace we are redeemed by a risen Savior and we serve a risen King? That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying Jesus is a King who is mighty to save. And this last verse just brings all this home. I love this last verse. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So see, Paul just set up some ironic imagery here. And then he goes through and evokes some more imagery. Paul is evoking some imagery that would have been obvious to his audience at the time. This language of, 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 of a disarming rulers and bringing them to shame is alluding to this practice that would happen when, when a kingdom would be victorious over another. A common way that a victorious army would show their victory and their superiority and their, in their, in their dominance over another kingdom was to march through the streets of that kingdom parading the spoils of their conquest their captives their riches their leaders and they would parade them down the streets and all the people and any leaders and authorities left would be put to shame because they were they were dominated they were defeated 
So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, yes, there is a battle. And Jesus has been victorious. What is his spoil that we're referencing here? What is, what is he parading down the streets of an opposing kingdom? It's you and me. We are his spoils. Oh my God. I mean, like, seriously, like, just, you're his spoils. Like, he's saying, like, you're defeated. Look at all these people that I have liberated, that I have freed, putting you to shame because you have no power, you have no authority. You're under my feet. That's you and me. In Him. In Jesus' resurrection, He defeated death and sin. In His resurrection, we have eternal life and we have present purpose. This charge at the beginning, therefore, you, as you receive Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, is speaking great promise and totally just shining the brightest light that can be on your purpose in this world if you have called on Christ. We talked about it last week. When you realize that the axis between your feet, wherever you're standing, is God's purpose for your life to be a light for Christ and to live for His glory and to hold out the hope of Jesus... All of a sudden, we talked about it last week, all of a sudden, this whole, this whole guilt that comes from not having time goes away. Because wherever you are, you are the light of Christ. Wherever you are, you're sharing in the fellowship of believers or you're living as the light among the world. So let us just breathe some peace and some life into you. Whether you're gathering with the body of Christ, just enjoy. Because if this is your identity... You don't have to make it be something. It's part of who you are is what Paul is saying. If you're, if you're in your workplace, if you're out in the world, if you're, if you're doing some intentional mission, like, again, it's who you are. Just, again, he's, Paul's like, hey, this is who you are. Walk in it. If you receive Christ, walk in Him. Abound in thanksgiving. Let it just spill out and splash on those around you. So there's great promise and great purpose in a resurrected Savior. And everything else falls by the wayside. So that is why we celebrate the words spoken by the men at the tomb when they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. That is why we gather and we come together today and we think on this all across the world today. Churches will be proclaiming that He is risen. And the congregations will be calling back, He is risen indeed. All around the world, you will hear this today. In this room, we will hear this today. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that the promises of God are true. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that God is real. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that Jesus is alive. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that we are alive. But when we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that because He is risen, we are risen too. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim the purpose of our entire lives. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim the glory of God. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim the promise of Jesus to the entire world. When we proclaim that He is risen, we proclaim that there is a freedom in Him and an incorruptible hope.
come what may, because he is on the throne, because he is, because God is sovereign, he is not surprised. Nothing goes wasted. So today, with, with resounding hearts, if you will, let us proclaim together, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Can we do that together? All right, we're going to see how this goes. All right. He is risen.